the unsurpassed, deep, profound, subtle, wonderful Dharma in a hundred thousand million eons is difficult to encounter. Now that I've come to receive and hold it within my sight and hearing, I bow to fathom the thus come one's true and actual meaning. Venerable Master, friends in the Dharma, welcome to our Sutra lecture tonight. Um, we're going to continue to investigate the Flower Adornment Sutra, the Avatamsaka, known as the Huayan Jing. And uh, we're on a chapter called the Ten Grounds, the Shi Di Pin. And we've been looking at it now for quite a while, and we're halfway through the first of Ten Grounds. So uh, we're going to start tonight, as we always do, by uh, reciting the name of the Sutra in the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, which you find in the front cover of your text. And the idea is that we're inviting them to draw near the, the real Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Avatamsaka Assembly. And, and uh, Master Shrenhua, our founder and, and teacher, always said that when uh, people are sincere in making the invitation and do it rufa, that means according to the Dharma, means according to traditional ways, with respect in our hearts, then... The uh, Avatamsaka assembly is just happy that somebody takes this text as uh, important enough to open it up and to look into it. So they respond, they come. Uh, now, we may not be able to verify that with our own eyes and ears, but uh, um, there's definitely a different feeling when you do it rufa, according to Dharma. There's a sense of cleanliness and kind of lightness and ease and a uh, sense of something special having happened when you do it that way. So I'd like to invite you to do it with me, please. And uh, we'll chant this seven times. We do it in Chinese. And let's put our palms together, should you choose to do that, and request the Huayan Hai Hui Fo Pusa, the ocean-wide assembly of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas to come near. Namo
Anybody forget to turn your cell phone off? Nobody did, right? You all remembered. I did. There's that red dot looking right at me. Please open up your text to page 86. If you don't have a text because you're joining us online from wherever you might be, because we're webcasting tonight and our broadcast is going out around the world, um, there is a text available at BTTS online, BTTS, Buddhist Text Translation Society online.org, BTTS online.org. And if that's not possible, if you can't get to, to that, um, don't worry about it because we uh, always recite the text that we're lecturing on before we begin. So um, if you just let the sounds of the text move through you, uh, you should get a feeling for what we're going to explain. All right, now in our on page 86, we're stanza number four, which is next to the last. We're going to do four, five, and six tonight. So I'll give you the Chinese and repeat after me. Okay, let's look over to the right hand side. They feel abundant happiness and joy. And their pure faith increases as well. They are courageous to the utmost. And have much to celebrate. Okay, let's go back to the Chinese. Do Xi Do Ailo Do Xi Do Ailo Yi Fu Do Jing Xin Yi Fu Do Jing Xin Ji Da Yong Mang Xin Ji Da Yong Mang Xin Ji Yi Qing Ye Xin they feel abundant happiness and joy. They feel abundant happiness and joy. And their pure faith increases as well. And their pure faith increases as well. They are courageous to the utmost. They are courageous to the utmost and have much to celebrate and have much to celebrate. We're talking about bodhisattvas, awakened beings. A bodhisattva is an awakened being. Um, we've got them in the West for sure. We may not call them bodhisattvas because that's a Sanskrit word. 
but there are mm, awakened beings everywhere. And one way you tell whether somebody is awake or still sleeping, it's you can't really tell if they're a bodhisattva. Are you a bodhisattva? If he says yes, chances are he's not. That's a pretty good rule of thumb. If you have a bodhisattva who advertises himself, herself as enlightened, be careful. Because they're trying to sell you something. Um, however, there are ways to know whether somebody is awake or still asleep. Uh, somebody who is still asleep is someone who uh, lets their emotions run over them all the time. They, you kind of have a feeling of, of, uh, kind of unease or disease when issues of emotion arise because this person could explode or fly off or just unreliable when it comes to emotion. Now, that doesn't mean somebody who has deep feeling. Uh, for example, artists can feel very deeply. And if your feelings are close below your skin, easily accessible and readily expressed, that's not necessarily somebody who's not awake or somebody who's still asleep. Um, likewise, um, if somebody is very wooden and doesn't feel anything, that's not for sure a sign that they're awake. Right? So, understand that it's not simple. People are complex creatures. And the mind is what we're talking about. The mind is like the ocean. People who dive, people who uh, scuba dive or dive with uh, compressed air tubes, and in a, in a suit say that uh, if you go down only a short distance you can uh, find currents under the water it seems on the top that there are waves and you go down you think the water must be calm and clear down below but I understand that there are uh, there's like rivers running in the ocean that if you go down the right number of feet there's water moving very fast you go down further and the water can be crystal clear and you go down deeper and the water can be murky. So there are like layers of ocean water. It's not, it's not uh, one thing. Emotions are very much like that too. Um, I remember my first road trip through New England um, with my dad and my, my family. I was fascinated when I got it, when we got into the, the Green Mountains in Vermont, because a lot of those roads had to be blasted out from the mountains, and you could see the strata, you could see the horizontal layers of mountain, and it's how wonderful as if somebody had like peeled back a mountain, so you could see the way you'd never seen a mountain before, and here were all these layers. And they were different colors, and they were different compositions. Some were shale, some were granite, some were were uh, clay, and then you'd have granite again. 
And it, every time we'd go down the freeway, I, we'd, I'd hope my dad would slow down so I could examine, you know, instead of just going right by so fast. The mind is just that way. The mind is full of layers. So somebody who um, is able to express all those qualities is not necessarily awake, not necessarily asleep if you um, can't express them. And the opposite is true. So how do you know if somebody's awake? Well, um, I have a specific teaching from Master Shrenhua that I'm going to share later. I'll keep that like dessert because Shrenhua uh, gives us the, this incredibly precise, clear, simple perspective on the mind and how to use it. But I'll, I'll save that. I'll let us hmm, look at the options for a while before we, uh, we have to eat our green beans and our potatoes before we get to the dessert. Okay? We have to make sure we have a full meal. Now, here's an example of awakened beings who feel something. What does it say? It says, Duo Xi Duo Ai Le. Some people would read that Ai Yao sometimes. What is it? Bodhisattvas are happy. Awakened beings are really happy. We know that. Okay? If you're unhappy, does that mean you're not awake? No. You don't, don't have to jump to conclusions too quickly. But what we can work with is here's the sutra. Clear words saying Duo Xi means what? Lots of happiness. Bodhisattvas on the first stage, here in the first ground, are happy a lot. Do, do means a bunch. Mucho. Taksan tsne. Oku. Lots. Lots of happiness. And then the word comes back again. Do again. Much I le. Let's use it as le here. Much I le. Which means liking. There's a lot of stuff that bodhisattvas love, is what it means here. can be used that way. I don't think it means love here, but because love implies its opposite as well. Love and hate and bodhisattvas aren't swung around on dualities like that. But what is I doing there? What is that word? And they got do. There's lots of things to like. How do we translate it? Abundant happiness and joy. We took Ila as a compound. In other words, bodhisattvas feel things. How many Buddhists have you met who give you the impression that they've just bit down on a big lemon? Sour. Mm. Have you met those Buddhists? I've met them. They're kind of like happiness. If you feel it, it's wrong. It's bad. Mm. Buddhists who frown all day long. Why? Suffering, you know. Suffering, serious stuff, man. Got to suffer more if we're a Buddhist. I met those kind of Buddhists who are kind of professional sufferers, you know. And there's, ah, I just think, um, is that what Buddhism is? Uh, thanks, that's not me. I'm not a Buddhist today. If, that's, if you define what it means to be a Buddhist, then... Uh, I won't say I'd rather be a Christian, but I will certainly not want to be whatever you are, you know. And so as I say that, I say it with um, great affection, because why? I went through a phase in my cultivation when I was so sure 
that I was never going to get enlightened, that I was miserable all day long. And I, my face was all scrunched up. And as a result, everything that I saw proved to me that this was just all suffering. And it took Master Xuanhua to say to me something like, you know, he said, uh, at one point you, had, you cultivated a lot of blessings. But your, your confusion about getting enlightenment, your seeking mind, he said, you burned all those, you lost them, you're back to zero. He said, when are you going to let it go? He said, He said, when you reach the place when you no longer seek anything, you don't have any worries left. But you who are seeking are just totally upset. You're totally afflicted, he said. And, I mean, how plain could it be? Just bang, right on my head. And I thought, yeah, yeah, sure, well, I understand that. Meanwhile, I'm supposed to be enlightened already. It's like, oh, you know, he just shook his head. To the point where, um, on a pilgrimage that I took at one point with another monk, um, we would get to see Master Shrenhua once a month. He would come by, and we were bowing outdoors and he would drive by on his way to City of 10,000 Buddhas and give us one word of advice and let us work on that for the next 30 days by ourselves. Tough. Real Chan master style. right? Zen master style. Give us that pithy word and that pithy word was worth a lot. Sometimes he would get out of the car and sit and talk. And, How you doing? How's it going? What's, tell me about it. You know. And that was mostly for Marty, the other monk because Marty was, had only been a monk for for as long as the pilgrimage. And so Sherfu had to deal with him more, with a lot more words and, and direct teaching. And I remember one time, I was close in on City of 10,000 Buddhas, only going to be another couple months before we arrived after two years and a half. And man, I was counting every day and thinking, not enlightened yet, not enlightened yet. Oh my God, only a month and I'm not enlightened. What's wrong? When is the Bodhisattva going to come and rub the crown on my head and say, congratulations, you're, you're enlightened. And I was really afflicted, really upset. And I was counting on Shurfu to be the one to deliver the goods. Because if it doesn't come from a teacher like this, where are you going to get it? Right? From a Bodhisattva? Mm. So, the day arrived. It was a Saturday. Shurfu was driving up to city of 10,000 Buddhas and we were just waiting for him, waiting for him. So, he drove by. We saw the car. We're ready. Here's Shurfu. We're going to get my teaching. Maybe, maybe this month I've done it. Maybe he's going to confirm. Okay. So what happened? Well, car pulled up. Kept waiting for the door to open. The door didn't open. But the window was rolled down. Just the window. Shurfu looked out of the car and said, Dao wu qiu chu bian wu you." Drive on. Seven words was one month worth. Same message. When you reach the point of seeking nothing else, nothing further, then there are no worries. That's it. Just bang. So clearly, my theme was, you're still seeking. That's all he wanted to tell me for 30 days was, you're still seeking. Guess what? Not happy really, really super afflicted. Not what I was waiting for. So, I remember that situation. Man, I looked like the major 
sour lemon face. I had just bitten down on a lime. I was so I totally understand how people can get to that place where mm, you create your own suffering. And the Buddha Dharma seems like it's just nothing but suffering. The world is just nothing but suffering. And you know what? That's profoundly not Buddhist. Right? That's so far away from proper Dharma. That's really not what the Buddha taught. And that's what Master Shrinwa was trying to pound into my head was lighten up. You're running right past it. Right? You're seeking so hard for something you think you should have that you missed it entirely. All the good stuff that's there is you've run right by it. Like somebody who has the football under their arm and they're sprinting for the goal line. They cross the goal line and keep sprinting right up into the stands, right? <laughs> right through, out into the parking lot, still running. Did I make it yet? You know, stop, stop, you've already scored. <laughs> right out of the stadium, right? Still running, running, running. You just get in the habit of running, you don't realize that there's nothing to get. Okay, so that's an illustration of how some Buddhists who I know, and myself was one for a period of time, are just sour pusses. Sour pusses. Doshi. What are bodhisattvas like? Doshi. Lots of happiness. Do I love. Lots of things to enjoy. Lots of mm, pure joy. Happiness. Ifu do jing xin. Furthermore, what else? Much pure faith. Hmm. Question. Anybody who's mm, gone into the study of the texts know that when it comes to the question of faith, wow, Buddhism doesn't talk about faith very much. Unless you get to the Pure Land school in which faith and devotion are the whole story. So what does it mean? Yifu do jingxin. Lots. Not a little, but do a lot of pure faith. So what is pure faith? Mm, let's talk about that in a minute. Ji Extremely big courage. Heart. Attitude. So a heart that is not timid, not cowardly, not mm, weak, because Yongmang has a sense of mm, heroic courage. Big, big heart of heroic courage. Um, you know what? There are guys sitting in the back and there are empty seats on the guy's side. March yourselves right down and grab a seat, please. All right. So much jida, really big, extremely big. Yongmang Xin, heart, attitude of courage. Okay, why? Why does a Buddhist have to be courageous? Mm, ask the person who was out cultivating, afraid that he was not going to get enlightened when the, before the time was up, right? What a wonderful opportunity to cultivate out there under the stars, right, under the sun, people supporting, nothing to do but bow, focus my mind and be joyful. And what do le, do xi, happiness, uh-uh. My, my fear completely twisted and squeezed all the joy out of the experience of bowing. 
doesn't sound like your idea of a pilgrim, right? That doesn't sound like three steps, one bow, the, the enlightened monk. Uh-uh. Not, in fact, the seeking monk, who as a result of that turned his pilgrimage into misery. How strange that people would do that. That's what we do. That's what I did, certainly. So why not courageous? Fear. Afraid I wasn't going to get the good stuff. Afraid I would be what's called loser. Right? And the other side of that is seeking to be the winner. So seeking to be the winner, there's a fear that you might not get the stuff. Strange and strange how the mind will just turn, turn something very innocent and pure into a knot. Hmm. Furthermore, a lot to celebrate. A lot to celebrate. Okay. Now, when I say there are Buddhists who um, get sour, even to the point where they teach things like, and if, you, if this is not something you've heard, I shouldn't plant it down in your mind. But um, I travel in circles where you hear the word hells a lot. There are people who preach the Dharma of fear. And I met them. And I would maintain, based on this verse right here in the Sutra, that they're cultivating something other than the Mahayana Dharma taught by the Buddha in the Avatamsaka Sutra. Seriously, there are people who people who will send you to hell for small transgressions all the time. That's their consciousness. Make this mistake, you're going to fall into the hells. And I'm just, as I say, I don't want to plant that one down. If you haven't heard it, if that's not your experience of Buddhism, please don't step in that direction. Don't go down that road. But there are folks who somehow have, I think, and here's, I'm telling you about a problem and I want to trace it back to what I think is the cause. I think it's a misunderstanding of precepts. I think it's a misunderstanding of what the Buddha taught as the method for actually, for something that is actually very happy, very joyful. It's a misunderstanding that arises from the culture that says happiness comes from consuming and from acquiring and from relationships. The culture tells us that if we buy the right stuff, we can be happy. That's what the culture tells us. And it's everywhere. It surrounds us. It's in advertising. It's in the movies. It's in magazines. It's in websites. That happiness is something you buy. And without it, you're not happy. If you don't have it. Or if the one you have is last seasons, last years, last product cycle. Your happiness is gone. Right? And 
that we're all supposed to be winners and we judge it by stuff we get. That's what the culture tells us. Okay, the Buddha Dharma doesn't talk like that, right? But what do we do? What did I do, speaking personally? I took that winner and put it over on top of my cultivation. And if I didn't win something that I thought I was supposed to have, I wasn't happy. I thought, gee, I must be a loser. So it's confusing the marketplace mind with the way place, the bodhimanda mind of cultivation, which goes inside to judge whether or not you got the right stuff instead of looking outside. So, when I say we misunderstand the precepts, what the Buddha taught as a recipe for happiness is character, concentration, and then clarity. In other words, precepts, samadhi, wisdom. So let's go backwards. Wisdom is what the Buddha taught. That's what you want. Not enlightenment. Whatever enlightenment is. Sounds like a product. He said wisdom is what we want. Wisdom is clear seeing. Is understanding. Wisdom sees through the surface. Down to the cause and the effect. Wisdom looks at an oak tree and sees the acorn. And in the acorn sees a forest of oak trees. And the oak trees have acorns that contain forests of oak trees that have acorns like that. Wisdom, in a single glance, sees root out to branch tip, including the flowers and the fruits. That's wisdom. Clear seeing. No confusion. Where does that wisdom come from? It comes from a place. That place is stillness, concentration, purity, called samadhi. Okay? So stillness in the mind, stillness in the body, comes from sitting still and that wisdom arises. You see clearly with your very own body and mind. Wisdom comes from concentration. Where does the concentration come from? Concentration comes from somewhere. comes from character. From who I am as a person. And that's a very universal code of behavior. Every religious founder teaches the same stuff. Number one, be kind and don't kill. Number two, be generous and not greedy. Share. Number three, be true to your promises. If you're married, don't cheat. If you're not married, don't be promiscuous. Don't hurt people with sexual desire. That's taught everywhere, everywhere. Number four, be truthful. Don't lie. And the fifth one, which is not universally shared among religions, but is uh, true for all meditators, is don't put substances in your body that are going to confuse you, that are going to change your body chemistry so that you can't see clearly. In other words, intoxicating substances. Things you drink, drop, toke, smoke, chew, inhale, imbibe, whatever you do. So, kindness instead of killing, generosity instead of stealing, fidelity instead of infidelity, 
and not harming with sexual desire, selfish desire. Honesty instead of dishonesty. And sobriety, straight mind, clean body chemistry. The Buddha said, if you want to get to wisdom through samadhi, look at character. Here's how I describe it, said the Buddha. Why? Not, and here's where we get our topic tonight, not because he wants people to be unhappy. Okay, what does the marketplace says? The marketplace says, you want to have fun? Right? Eat all you want, drink all you want, play all you want, play around, and happiness is right there. Do whatever you want. Kill, steal, lust, lie. doesn't matter so much as I get to satisfy my selfish desire. You only go around once in this life, grab for all the gusto you can get. Drink Budweiser. Right? I'm not endorsing Budweiser tonight. I happen to like Kaoshan Cha myself. <laughs> the marketplace says that's where happiness comes from, is consuming, identifying with products, getting stuff that is really me. Right? Well, okay, so if in the process of doing that you kill, steal, lust, lie, and drug yourself, what did the Buddha say? The Buddha said it's going to impede your concentration. Not you're bad, you should be unhappy. No, it's that if you say, if I say, I'm interested in being wise, I want to be able to figure stuff out, seeing it, I know what to do. I'm clear because I really see it, not from somebody else's opinion or I have to read it or search online to figure it. No, I look at the situation and I see the pattern, I see the root, I see the branch tip, and I know whether I'm going to go left or right or front or back or stop because my wisdom shows me that. That's attainable. We can have that ability. It's not anybody else. We can have that ability. It comes from... Stillness comes from clarity, comes from concentration, purity, which comes from what I do with my body, my mouth, and my mind, mostly when I'm not meditating. Okay? In other words, behavior. The Buddha said, yes, he said, go out and have like a bodhisattva, but understand that if you can avoid these five pitfalls, your meditation is going to be quiet and still and pure and sharp and you'll see clearly what to do because you'll have wisdom. So in other words, here's the point. I think people misunderstand the way the Buddha gave us those rules, those guidelines, to think that it means no fun and sourpuss and lemon sucking. Mm. Meanness. I don't. I think it's a misunderstanding. Okay. When I was growing up, as a kid in the '60s, I wanted to do what I wanted to do, and if I had the money to buy it, I was going to buy it. Of course, I only had an allowance, twenty-five dollars, twenty-five cents a week. My allowance was twenty-five cents a week if I cut the grass, washed the car shoveled the snow and did the dishes. 25 cents a week, man. That means a month, a dollar. A dollar a month. 
It went up when I was in high school. Dollar a week. How about that? But I still had to do all that stuff. Okay. So I had buying power. If I was going to buy it, get out of my way. I'm buying that. I'm a consumer. Right? It was, it was happiness back then. Hmm. Clarity on that point, I think, opens up a lot of happiness. The Buddha didn't give us the precepts in order to make us unhappy or losers in the marketplace. Not a bit. Okay? If I'm missing a reason why people, Buddhists, can be sour-faced and grim and just full of meanness, then tell me because I really want to figure out why that is. And if you haven't met the Buddhists I'm talking about, Omi Tofu, bless you. Don't go looking for them, right? How wonderful. But the issue is happiness. Okay, so let's put those folks aside and hope someday they get happy through their meditation, experience abundant happiness and joy, pure faith increased, courageous to the utmost and lots to celebrate. Why might other people not immediately associate Buddha Dharma and happiness? Any suggestions? How come people don't automatically think happy when they think of Buddhists? One particular word. I knew you'd know the answer. I knew you'd <laughs> Suffering. Right? Otherwise known as ko or dukkha in Sanskrit. Okay. Way to go, Jason. Suffering. Okay. By golly. And there's another word, too, which is even deeper. What's the original English translation of nirvana? Anybody know? How do the British, the early British, mostly missionaries, translate nirvana? Jason? Extinction, five stars to the man on the second row. Two for two. Extinction for nirvana. Who wants to be extinct? Dinosaurs, right? Oh my God. Who wants to be extinct and suffer? Suffer and then go extinct. I think I'll go get baptized quick, right? Heaven is way better than extinction. True, it's true. The earliest translations from Pali took nirvana because why? There's a Sanskrit Pali root for nirvana that does translate as extinction, but that's not a description of what the Buddha experienced as the end of the path. Okay, extinction is what happens to species, right? They're gone for good, vanished. You know, they're endangered, then they're extinct. Oh my God, who wants that? So, those two words are what kind of move us away from thinking about happiness and Buddhism together. Okay, most of the people who I have met in my life, who I consider um, real practicing Buddhists, tend to be pretty happy. They're a pretty happy bunch. Um, so, when we went through the prose in our text earlier, we're in, now this is the verse restatement. When we went through the prose, um, we had a chance to look deeply into happiness, and we did week after week because the text introduced it. <coughs> Excuse me. 
This is the first ground, and the first ground is called the ground of happiness. So I think those of you who are coming regularly will remember a lot of the analysis that we did of things that make us happy and reasons why we're not. If we're unhappy, where did it come from? If we understand the cause of suffering, of unhappiness in my life, I have a better chance of figuring out this issue of happiness, unhappiness, of suffering and suffering's end. And what did the Buddha really say about this? This is a, a good this chapter is a good place to pin that all down and to get clear about it. So these are bodhisattvas, awakened beings. They're Doshi, Doaila. They're happy a lot. Do, that adjective means abundant happiness, abundant joy, and lots to celebrate. All right. How come? When we went through it before, we sketched out um, a whole spectrum of the words that fill our English language vocabulary on the road to happiness. The first thing we did was to to label happiness as something everybody wanted. Remember, if you if you go out on the Shattuck Avenue, University Avenue, Telegraph Avenue, if you go up in the hills, if you go into Oakland, if you go across the bay to San Francisco, North Bay, South Bay, anywhere you go, California, all over the country, worldwide, if you ask people to list three things that they want, for sure, for sure, happiness will be among those three. Often, number one. Not always. Sometimes it's wealthy. Right? Sometimes it's peaceful. Sometimes it's Sue or Bob. You know, what do you want most in the whole world? Susan. Right? Bob. Happiness is usually in the first three things. Often it's number one. If you follow that question with, are you happy? You get a very interesting set of answers. Um, if the answer is no, and you follow with the question, do you know how to get happy? what do you plan to do about it, the, the arrow goes right off the chart. People, by and large, don't know how to be happy. We're not taught how to really get there. We're taught one thing, for sure, which is buying stuff, acquiring things. It, advertising tells us that if we get the right stuff, happiness should be there. And you've heard the cliche, right? 
he or she who dies with the most stuff wins. Right? That definition of the goal of a lifetime is to acquire as much as humanly possible. That's so obviously not true. If that were true, then how come there's a huge industry in storage facilities now? Right? You're aware of this huge growth thing of we have so much stuff we have to buy, rent a garage, rent a container, rent a storage unit. Right? Often it's exactly the opposite, that the more stuff we have, the more trouble, the more affliction we have. People who have a lot of stuff are not necessarily happier. And in fact, there are correlations that even pin it down to salary. Do you know what the key, what the, the, where, it, where it flattens out? What is the salary that is considered in this country right now to be optimum for happiness after which the happiness doesn't rise any further? Do you know? Anybody see this study? About 60,000. 60,000 is roughly the place where if you double it, happiness does not double. From 60,000 to 120,000 should double the happiness and satisfaction. People report not the case. That if you can pretty much aim for above or below 60,000, your needs are met. Pretty much you ensure your well-being for given everything, right? Healthcare, etc. But Above that, what they say is the happiness kind of flattens out. And if it, you think up to a million, there's no correlation between the first million and five times the happiness, right? Three times the happiness. Doesn't happen. Interesting. What about that? So there's some sense that stuff doesn't equal happiness. Now, who said that? The Buddha said that pursuing happiness does not deliver happiness. What the Buddha taught was a very interesting approach to this whole question. Most of the people in the world will tell you happiness is one of the top three things they want out of life. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Another, by the way, just as a footnote, another word that occurs in those top three is freedom. That's complicated because there's freedom from and freedom to. Okay, we won't go there tonight, but happiness is right up there. Everybody agrees that's something we want, but how do we get it? You can prove really quickly that stuff and wealth is not the answer, always. The Buddha said, here's what I learned that in a world where things come together based on component parts, in a world where so many things are made up of other things, when those things come apart, we experience dissatisfaction. Dukkha, which also translates as suffering. Why? He said, this is what I learned, said the Buddha. He said, when we look for stuff, when craving for stuff outside is what we do all day long, 
suffering arises. Dissatisfaction arises. Why? Because even if we get it, stuff falls apart. In a world of compound things, right? Things made up of conditions, yuan sheng zhipa. Things that arise because of multitudes of things coming together, mostly everything, right? From glass to the flowers to the photograph to the, the dew on the lid of my teacup, that's all compound dharmas. In a world where things are made up of other stuff, which is everything, chemistry students take note, right? Physicists take note, moms. In a world where stuff is made of other stuff, when those conditions fall apart, suffering is a result. For sure. Why? Because people cling. We attach. We do. I, on my pilgrimage, completely verified that that was true. I thought happiness for me was going to result from getting enlightened, Captain Enlightenment. I wanted all that. Did I have any idea what it was? No, but I sure wanted it like mad. Okay, well, I was falling directly into the Buddha's description of what not to look for. Something made up of other stuff. I had no clue what enlightenment meant, but I knew I wanted it bad. Wouldn't let it go. Despite the teacher saying, this is where the problem is. Okay. So, the Buddha said, in a world where stuff is made up of conditions, when we crave those things, suffering is ahead. The ship is heading towards the rocks, for sure. Why? Because even if you get it, it's going to go away. And what do we do when stuff breaks? We cry. It hurts. Including what? Our bodies. Right? The planet itself. Can you imagine the force released by an 8.8 earthquake? They said, originally, the first reports were a thousand times worse than the Haiti earthquake. Then they revised it to say more like 500 times worse. When you go from 7, what was Haiti? 7.6 or 8.5? What was the Haiti quake? I don't recall. What was it? 7 point something. Okay, 8.8 is exponentially more. Okay, the force of that says what? The earth comes apart. This thing that is so solid, right, is not at all. It's a molten core held to spinning, right? There you go. Ten times the motion, ten times the displacement, a hundred times the power. Thanks. So what is there to depend upon? The third truth. The Buddha said, there's more that I discovered. He said, number one, in a world where we live, where things are made up of other things, and we pursue those things and cling to them, suffering or dissatisfaction. Dukkha means unsatisfied. Doesn't hit the spot will result. It won't hit the spot. You're investing in it. You want it. You get it. It didn't hit. That's not what I was looking for. It didn't satisfy my heart. Again and again and again, right? Or worse, it just broke in front of me, including our relationships. He doesn't love me anymore. She doesn't look the way she did. Right? Or uh, you've changed. 
right? The things that that we fear the most in a relationship happens. We age, right? We change. Hearts are very fluid things, right? So, in a world where relationships, consuming and acquiring, are given to us as the good stuff, and we consume as much as we can, we stuff ourselves, right? If one soy chai latte is good, three must be better, right? So we chug three soy chai lattes and we get this terrible stomachache. And we empty our Starbucks credit card, right? We feel terrible. I thought that was good. Well, too much. We consume too much, right? We acquire stuff. We get stuff. We fill our houses with stuff and our garages and our storage units. And the happiness doesn't change much. Or relationships. We find joy that changes. And we go, who's got a clue about what's going on? Only if we're thinking, right? Sometimes we just throw ourselves back into the same cycle. The Buddha said, take a look. Take a look. Here's why it doesn't hit the spot. It's the nature of stuff made of conditions. It's made of other stuff. Everything is components. Everything is like our computers. Take away the keyboard and you better have a trackpad or else your computer won't work. Take away the mouse. You know a few keyboard commands, but it won't work. Take away the monitor. It's almost a computer, but there's no monitor. You can't see what's going on, right? Take away the printer and you got to keep shifting it around from Wi-Fi to handheld, but you can't print it. So computers are made of components. Then you got all the pieces together, hook it up right. It's supposed to work. Okay. Everything in the world is made of components. There are two things, the Buddha said, that are unconditioned dharmas, that are not made of components. What are they? One is space surrounding us, the air, this thing that my hand is moving through, that touches everything equally everywhere, including inside ourselves. Empty space is not conditioned. It's not made up of other stuff. The other dharma that is unconditioned is, anybody know? I'm not going to look at Jason until nobody knows. What's the other Wu Wei Fa, unconditioned dharma? Nope. Anybody? Nirvana. Nirvana is not made of other stuff. It's the absence of conditioned arising. So two things, space and nirvana, are two unconditioned dharmas. Absolutely everything else that the Buddha described for us is put together and therefore at some point it will come apart. Hmm. Okay. If we seek in there for security, stability, longevity, and the happiness that comes from that, the Buddha said, we're not going to find it. However, in the midst of that, he said, suffering can end. You can get to a place beyond that mm, doesn't hit the spot state. You can. We can. We can even get to a place of abundant happiness and joy, pure faith, utmost courage and celebration. 
Where is that place? And that leads us to tonight, right? To our lecture tonight. The Buddha said at, at the beginning, he said it's the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path is the place that that state, that dukkha, unsatisfying or slash suffering, that state can end. And the Eightfold Path, he said, is a skillful, wise living. Skillful, wise living. And for the, that's, mind you, a description of not the Bodhisattva. That's a description for the beginners in cultivation. For Bodhisattvas, he said, joy comes from crossing things over. From taking living beings across is the language the Buddha used. The Buddha said joy for the Bodhisattva comes from this amazing, amazing set of statements. One, living beings are numberless, boundless, and I'm going to save every one of them. Two, suffering is infinite. Fannal, afflictions, are utterly infinite, and I'm going to put an end to them all. How do you end something infinite? Ask the Bodhisattva. Three, ways of practice. Faman, Dharma doors, numberless. There's no way to count all the methods of practice. I'm going to master them all. I'm going to practice every one of the Dharma doors, said the Bodhisattva. And finally, in accordance with the Eightfold Path, the Buddha's way, the Eightfold Path is supreme. I'm going to realize it in my person here, not waiting for somebody else or later. In accordance with the truth of suffering, living beings are numberless. Those beings who are suffering are numberless. I'm going to save every one of them, take them across, cross them over to a place where suffering ends. That's the Bodhisattva's heart. Impossible. He's, he or she is giving themselves this impossible job. And yet, that's the Bodhisattva. How courageous. How inspiring. Right? That's where the happiness comes from. Are you going to do it today? Nah, I'll do it one living being at a time. When they're done, that's when I'm done. When they're all crossed over, that's when my job ends, says the Bodhisattva. Okay? Afflictions, troubles, in accordance with the truth of the arising of suffering, afflictions are infinite. And yet, I'm going to transform them all. I'm going to cure every disease, says the Bodhisattva. Pretty amazing doctor, right? I'm going to cure cancer, and then I'm going to start on heart disease. And after heart disease, I'm going to start on... Mm, Chronic fatigue. And after chronic fatigue, I'm going to work on mm, osteoporosis. And after that, you know, the Bodhisattva just says, I'm going to end all that suffering. Then, in accordance with the, the uh, truth of cessation, Dharma doors are infinite. I'm going to learn them all. Finally, in accordance with the truth of the, four, the Eightfold Path, the Buddha's way is supreme. I'm going to accomplish it, realize it. So, that's what 
the Bodhisattva comes up with. Now, that sounds like an impossible job, but Bodhisattvas are not like sitting around pointing to the top of the mountain and plotting out the course to the top. Most of the people I know who I would describe as having this spirit have uh, run-down tennis shoes and sweat stains under their armpits. They're workers. They're hard workers. People who get out into the street, who are digging in the garden, people who are mm, in the kitchen, cooking the food, washing the dishes. Bodhisattvas that I... Do I know any Bodhisattvas? I wouldn't claim that. I know people who, re, who embody that spirit. They work. They're working. They're practicing. They're cultivating. They're not only talking about it. They can talk about it, but they're working hard. They're not sour pusses, right? Afraid of mm, going to hell afraid of being losers, whatever causes people to scrinch up and, and, and never enjoy, never enjoy their practice. So, okay. These bodhisattvas are happy in the pursuit of their vows. There's something about making those vows that takes the pressure off. It sounds funny, right? It sounds like a contradiction. When you make these incredible vows, somehow there's a sense that, okay, I know living beings are infinite and I'm going to cross them over. That's what I'm doing. doesn't have to be today. I'm not watching my watch. I'm not clicking up, crossed over 30, body, 30 living beings today. Click, 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 right? With your mantra counter. Not like that. It's the pressure goes away because your direction is clear. It's impossible. Let's do it. That's the, the heart of the Bodhisattva. Kind of amazing. Yuanli Yu Dou Zhang Nao Hai Ji Chen Hui Chan Jing Ar Zhi Zhi Shan Shou Hu Zhu Gan. They are utterly free from contention from troubling, harm, and from hatred. They're humble, modest, respectful, and straightforward. Skillfully, they guard all their faculties. <coughs> Here's a description of, of bodhisattvas once they experience this happiness. What are they? Yuan Li Yu Zhang. They're far apart from struggle. They don't contend. Master Shrenhua gave us the, uh, the six guidelines as his favorite method of practice. And number one of those is Bujang, not fighting. And it's an attitude of mm, once you are determined to do what's called crossover living beings, once you're determined to help people recognize the source of their suffering, to kind of get to the real core of what is of their frustration, then struggle to be right is a waste of time. 
it's counterproductive. So bodhisattvas tend to not be assertive. Um, they don't argue. They would prefer to teach by example. There are um, ways of turning your parents into vegetarians that work and ways that don't work. And this is one that comes up a lot. Um, not that everybody here intends to be a vegetarian or necessarily should want to be one. Um, I have people come up to me and say, um, I decided last week that I was going to be a vegetarian. But my mom wouldn't agree. So I took all the meat out of the refrigerator, put it in a black garbage bag, and tossed it into the dumpster. And guess what? I'm grounded. I'm grounded for a month. Mm, should I go on a hunger strike? I hear that, and that's not an exaggeration. I've heard that from enthusiastic new vegetarians. And it's like, uh. and then I say, well, why did you do that? And they say, well, you told me to last week in the lecture. You know, it's like, and then I get these angry emails from mothers. You know, what are you teaching my child? It's all fine. And they go, okay, okay, my fault, my fault. For sure, going on a hunger strike and throwing away the meat from the refrigerator is not the best way to make vegetarians out of your parents or your roommate. Worse, right? Why? It's because as good-intentioned as you may be, that's fighting. That's drunk you're much better off teaching by example. I remember um, when I went home as a college freshman for my first Thanksgiving. I had been living away from home. I think I was, what, 17, 18, college freshman. I'd been living away from home in a dormitory for a total of, what, six weeks? And I'd already grown a beard because chance to exert some individuality, some independence. And along with my buddies in the dormitory, we'd started meditating and stopped eating meat. And I got back to Toledo and it was Thanksgiving and sitting around the family dinner table at Thanksgiving with the big turkey in the middle and the giblet dressing and the side, ham, side, side dish of ham and all, I was determined to prove to my mom and dad in particular, my brother as well, my sister, that I was independent, 
that I had become a vegetarian and that I was purer than they were. I wanted to put it in their face that there's something fundamentally wrong with people who could kill a turkey, burn its body, and turn it upside down on the dinner table with its legs in the air. You must be savage to eat that bird. You know, and it's like, what a pain in the neck I was. (laughs) My dad threw me out of the house. It was cold in Toledo on November 20th. Oh, man. And I had my beard and I was hungry and I'd been kicked out of the house. Oh, man. And I, you know, as I look back, I probably would have kicked me out of the house quicker. Just as quick. Man, what a pain in the neck. So, remember Brian Conroy talking about his becoming a militant vegetarian and what a pain in the neck he was to... And his Thanksgiving, his Uncle Joe took him on. Ah, so you're a vegetarian now. Uh Uh-huh, all right. So how do you like those carrots? Anyway, so I just got thrown out. So anyway, I really encourage everybody who wants to mm, encourage members of their family to eat a healthy diet, to eat a diet free of cruelty and also free of antibiotics and growth hormones and, and, and stimulants that go into meat and things, growth stimulants. The best thing to do to change meat eaters, carnivores into vegetarians is to, with a smile, when the time is right, give them something to eat on their tongue, preferably that you cooked, that tastes as good as the meat they're giving up. One forkful at a time. One dish at a time. Bit by bit, one meal at a time. But check. If it doesn't taste as good as what they're giving up, you're not going to make them into vegetarians. Best way to do it, don't say a word. Feed them something that tastes as good as what they're going to give up. Where did we see that happen? We saw that happen in the kitchen at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery when my stepfather, Ted Metcalf, bless his heart, who is a dedicated meat eater, who said, my stepfather ate in restaurants all over the world, from Sydney, Australia, to Paris, France, to Stockholm, Sweden, to Montreal, Canada. He traveled for a living. He went to these wonderful restaurants and said, I'd like a steak. Make mine steak. I like steak. I'll take it rare. Yeah, I'll take a steak. And the rest of the waiter would say, Mais monsieur, nous avons des cordons bleus, des bons repas. Uh, I'd like a steak, please. Alors, the beef steak. Oh, oui. Bien sûr. <laughs> I like a steak. He really liked steak. He did. And my poor mom, who was trying to be a vegetarian, had to cook two different Kinds of, you know, just like a kosher kitchen. You know, you separate the meat and the milk. So she had to do that. Bless his heart, Ted came to the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and to celebrate his son's PhD. And once he came earlier than that, just because they were traveling in California. And guess what? No steak to be found in our dining room. Not even a little. Not even a little bit. Not a forkful. And so what did he do? Now, everybody 
who cooked here, bless your hearts, you were zoomed in, zeroed in on my dad and my mom, and you served really delicious vegetarian food. Some, some of it was mock meat, and that's okay. Suro, jiaro, because that is a fang bin, and it's, it's, it's soybean and you know creations that look like meat, smell like meat, chew like meat, but came from a soybean, right? And Ted Metcalf ate that, and he said, quote him, you've heard me say it a lot, what did he say? Boy, he said, if I could eat that every day, I wouldn't miss meat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Victory. Now, did he mean it? Well, he was a diplomat. And part of, part of, part of, him, part of it was because it tasted really good. And he wouldn't miss meat if he could eat that every day. So my mom was going, well, let's see, how do you, let's, well, tell me how to do that. And that's, uh, you screw, what is it? She's taking the recipes, learning how to cook it. Cause now sadly, in Toledo, you can't get all the ingredients you can get in the Bay Area. So it's harder, much, much harder to, if you don't have the stuff that goes into that food. But those of you who would like to share the joys of meat, free, cruelty-free cuisine with your family, take a lesson from my stepfather. You have to give them something that tastes as good as what they're giving up or else they're not going to change. Okay, so what do you do? Suggest one dish per meal, maybe. Vegetarian dish. Learn how to cook. Make it really good. Make it really tasty. And then say, hey, you suppose we could have a meat-free Fridays? Could we go veg once a week, once a month, twice a week, tw twice a month? Chui shiru, first and fifteenth. Start there. How about one meal? Oh, well, what are you cooking? That stuff you like. Remember last time? Oh, okay. You know, and then you bring out the good stuff. And they go, that's pretty good. You say, how do you feel afterwards? Kind of light, kind of nice. Yeah, good, good. How'd you like that dessert? That was really good dessert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so you there, there you go. You know, one meal a week, mm, twice a month, whatever. Bit by bit by bit by bit. But if you say, like I did on Thanksgiving, how can you kill that dead bird and rend its flesh? And you realize what you're doing? How much cruelty? What about those baby turkeys that were looking up at mother as her eyes were you ripped her head off? You know, it's like, yeah, you're not going to make vegetarians that way. You're going to get thrown out of the house like I would. So, true. What is it? Yuan li yu dou Far apart from contention. Bodhisattvas really want living beings to be full of joy, full of happiness. That's why they don't fight with them. Nao hai ji chen hui. They're far apart from troubling, from harm, and from hatred. If that is the motive for cultivation, nobody wants to get near you. If you teach the Dharma through fear, oh, you better do that or you're going to fall into the hells, or look what you did. You can fall into the... You're not doing what the sutra is saying. That is full of nao hai and chen hui. This, bodhi, this dharma of fear. 
Mm-mm. That's not what Shifu taught. It's not what the Sutra taught. Chan Jing Are What are they like? They are full of a sense of humble humility, modesty, respect, and they're straightforward. Shan Shou Hu Jugan. Furthermore, they are really good at pulling back their eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and mind. So that in the midst of a busy marketplace, in the midst of a world that tells us that we got to buy stuff in order to be happy, and then the stuff we got last year isn't good enough, we got to buy a new one, they can say, oh, I hear that message. That doesn't correspond to my own experience. In fact, the more stuff I got, the less satisfied I was. The new one didn't always make me happier. They can see that and go, okay, you know, I don't need a new one. The last one I got still works fine, right? I have upstairs a Macintosh SE30. Thank you very much. That runs very well. And that happy Mac face comes up. Remember that sound, the startup sound of the old Mac? I have upstairs a computer made in 1990 that runs great. And I'm proud of that. It's an SE30. That was the Cadillac of Macintoshes back when. Really. Now you can't give them away. You've got to pay to get somebody to take them away, right? It's a great computer. So if the old one still works, you don't necessarily need a new one. Mind you, it won't replace my MacBook Pro because there's no modem. No such thing as a modem back then. But all the same, it works great. Word processing, games, it's terrific. So... If we can, in the midst of that message, that we got to get the new one to be happy, if we can say, hmm, no, I hear you, let that one go. That's a flawed premise. My analysis has shown that's not true. You don't have to get angry. You don't have to get upset. Just say, hmm, thanks. That's somebody else's advertising message. I'm fine. You have learned to skillfully protect your six faculties, especially the mind that can be incited to greed if you don't see through it with wisdom. Okay, those are what bodhisattvas do. Now, um, let's turn over to page 88 and page 89. Because why? This is where we're going to start next week we're going to um, look further into a description of bodhisattvas and I promised that I was going to give you the dessert tonight if you ate your green beans and mashed potatoes and I got it we're going to transfer merit first and then I'll give you Shurfu's description of happiness so don't go away um, unless you don't want dessert and I'll give your peace to somebody else. Okay. Pay no attention to the breath. 
So early Saturday morning, uh, the country of Chile experienced a 8.8 Richter scale earthquake, utterly terrifying. 40 plus aftershocks as of this afternoon, they're probably still happening. And it released a tsunami that uh, just, I saw a chart of the uh, path of the force that was released from the earthquake and it was it reaches California and uh, of course Hawaii and as of uh, five o'clock it didn't it looked like it was they say Hawaii Miss dodge the bullet. So we can be grateful for small favors. So there's a lot to transfer, a lot of merit to be grateful for, we can share. Certainly people are welcome to transfer to whatever good cause you choose. Break the darkness of their endless night. 